Not sure your, your history with the scriptures, how familiar you are with the Psalms. So let's do a little bit of introduction before we dive into chapter one. What is this book? Um, it's a long book. Um, Psalms in he, the Hebrew means poetry or praise accompanied with music. It literally means praise songs or songs of praise. This, is, this book is a collection of 150 Hebrew poems, songs, and prayers that come from all over the nation of Israel's history. 73 of these Psalms we know are connected to King David. We all know King David. We're familiar with King David, um, famous king, but he's also a poet and harp player, musician himself. But then there was a lot of other authors that were involved in the composition of this book. We have Asaph wrote 12 of them. That's Psalms 50 and then 73 through 83 and, and possibly another one. The, song, the sons of Korah produced 10 of them. And there's other worship leaders in the temple uh, that contributed. You have Heman and Ethan, uh, Psalm 88 and 89. The Ezraites um, each wrote one. And then two Psalms are connected to King Solomon. And one dated back all the way to Moses. And then you have nearly one third of the Psalms, roughly 48 of them are anonymous. We don't know who the author is. But again, in these individual Psalms were written as far back as Moses, uh, Moses' time through the time of David, Asaph, Solomon, all the way to the Ezraites, who most likely lived after the Babylonian captivity. And so all of that to say is the timeline of the Psalms is spans roughly a thousand years from, from the oldest to the most recent. Now, the book of Psalms, if you didn't know this, is divided into five books or collections, if you will. They're not written in chronological order, unfortunately, um, but rather they're organized into five books. You have book one, which is Psalm 1 through 41. Book two is Psalm 42 through 72. Book three is 73 through 89. Book four is Psalms 90 through 106. And then book five is Psalm 107 through 150. And the interesting thing about the, the five books is that it, they each end with a doxology. That is a praise to the Lord. So Psalm um, or book one, the doxology is found in Psalm 41 and it ends this way. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting, amen and amen. Book two's doxology is a little bit longer. It says, blessed be the, the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders and blessed be his glorious name forever. And may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. And then book three's doxology, blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen. Shorter doxology. And so you get the drift. They all end with a doxology, a praise to the Lord. So we have 150 written over a thousand year time span, multiple authors divided into five books. Why five books? That's a great question. There's some thought that the five books here in the Psalms uh, correlate and, and are kind of work parallel with the themes of the Torah, the five books of the Torah, that is the law, uh, the first five books that are in your Bible. And there, are, there is evidence for that. But all of these Psalms, poems, songs, if you will, they're God ordained for us to sing and we've sung song, psalms before to read, like we're going to read tonight, and to learn. 
These songs express our praise to the Lord. They're psalms that tell us about who God is, about his character. Uh, They're songs for various times and seasons in our lives. That's what makes the psalms so fresh and refreshing because sometimes they meet you in a very specific and real place that you're going through here in 2021. But there's psalms of thanksgiving, you have psalms of wisdom, you have songs of joy. There's two major categories of psalms or themes of psalms, and that is um, you have songs and poems of lament, and then you have that which um, of praise. The songs of lament express, well, they're lament. They express pain and confusion and anger about how horrible the world is, how horrible things are going on, or maybe they happen, something horrible happened to the author. And so these psalms draw our attention to all the things that are just going horrible, um, and they ask God to do something. God, would you intervene? Would you smite the enemy or do whatever they're asking them to do? And then you have the Psalms of of praise. And these are prayers of joy and thanksgiving. They, 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 They reflect on the faithfulness of God for who he is and all that he's done in their lives. And so not only are these super applicable and encouraging for, again, those times in our lives, they're relatable, but they're also beautiful because they are poetry. And in poetry, and I'm not a big, like Kevin probably should have really given this introduction to the book because he's, he's big into poetry or probably the biggest of our pastors. But in poetry, you know, as we go through this book, we have to step outside of our Western idea of what poetry looks like. I'm, I'm big. If poetry doesn't rhyme, I'm not inter- interested in it, okay? That's what keeps me, me hooked is like when the two line or the every other line or however it works, see, um, rhyme. It's like, oh man, that thought, it just blossoms. And like songwriting is a lot like that as well. When, when there's a rhyming, um, rhyming words. But in Hebrew poetry, it's different. It's not about rhyming words. Hebrew poetry, um, again, doesn't rhyme, but it's more about the thought, the repetition of the thought. Maybe it, it's words in the next line or, the, or in the next two lines um, where it emphasizes maybe the point just a little bit more, a little bit stronger, but they saw the beauty in the thought itself and in its repetition. And so many times we'll read, the Lord is uh, my refuge and my strength, right? The Lord is my stronghold. The Lord is my helper. He's my deliverer. And it's in the building of the thought concerning the Lord. And then there's also, you have the contrasting thoughts. And tonight we're actually going to look at one here in Psalm chapter one, where the poetry is in contrast between the the righteous man and the unrighteous man, the ungodly man, the wicked man, right? So there's, there's different types of poetry and we'll Pick those out as we go along, but tonight we're going to start right there, right at the very beginning. Psalm chapter one says this, very familiar, but very, very practical for us tonight. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yield its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Psalm chapter one, it's a psalm of wisdom. It's a wisdom psalm. It portrays the way that the wise man chooses. What I love about this psalm, like I just said a minute ago, it's super practical. It introduces us to the way in which we can find happiness in our lives and fulfillment in our lives. And spoiler, it's all by delighting in God's word, okay? So just, just so you know. But Psalm 1 introduces us to the idea that there are two ways to live. There's two roads to choose from and to travel on. We looked a little bit at this on Sunday, right? When Jesus in Matthew, was it Matthew 7? He says, hey, there's two paths. You have the broad one, uh, many are on it, right? And then you have the narrow one that just a few end up taking. But Psalm 1 gives us this contrast between the godly man or woman and the ungodly man or woman. And we're going to start. Let's look at verse 1 again. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. So the psalmist starts with how blessed is this man. This word blessed in the Hebrew carries the idea of happiness or contentment. So it can really be read this way. Oh, how happy is the man or how fulfilled is the man? How satisfied is the man? That's the, that's the idea. And so tonight, if you're, if you're here and you're like, man, I could really use some more happiness in my life. The world's not really going the way I thought it should. Um, that's good. This is good news, man. We're here. We're here for this. So if you want to find more fulfillment, more satisfaction, more contentment in life, this is what Psalm 1 is all about. He says, how happy, how fulfilled is the man, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. The psalmist is saying, this man is happy. That's great. Why? Why is he happy? Because he doesn't listen to ungodly people. He does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, it's interesting because you and I, we live in the digital age, right? You're, and some of you, you're like, unfortunately, like I can't figure out my smartphone. But um, our brains are constantly stimulated by a ton of information that is just coming at us on a, I mean, probably by the, by the time we're done here, I will probably have notifications like on my phone, like clear, whether they're news notifications or social media notifications or what have you, right? That's just the day and age in which we live. Tons of information just coming at us, um, voices, various opinions, um, on a daily basis. The big word today, and I don't know if you know this, is screen time, right? That the, uh, the Apple, if you have an iPhone, you actually have a screen time limiter. My wife uses it and it drives me crazy because I'm trying to get in her phone. It's like, ah, oh, you're done for the day or whatever. Like you reach your screen time limit. And anyways, but one study reveals that the average adult spends 50 to 60 days per year on screens. Now, I, I looked at up multiple sources because I'm like, 50 to 60 days per year on screens. Now, that's not just your phone, right? That's a lot of people are working on a computer or a tablet or um, watching television. But they say, they're saying during this pandemic, that's almost been a year, that screen time, that 50 to 60 um, hours per year, it's up 40%. Crazy. 40%. But again, the rise of the digital age, which we love and hate at the same time, right? There's that tension. 
has opened you and I up to constant information and almost information overload, constant opinions. If you didn't re- recognize that this year, you just go on Facebook, you're like, wow, whoa. It's like whiplash, like this person has opinion, this person, and they're opposite, but uh, people are giving their opinions, how, how you should live your life, right? What, what, what um, the world wants you to look like, what should, in, in order to be successful, this is what, how it, your life should look like, there, um, what you should be pursuing in your life, what your priorities should be like in your life. But here in Psalm 1, we're told that the godly man or woman does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. You know, the voices in our lives are a dime a dozen. There's, there's many voices. So many people want to give you advice about your life on what you should do and how you should be, what you should pursue, what your dream should be, what your long-term vision should be for your life, right? So many people will speak into that, but he's saying here, if you want to be blessed, don't walk in the counsel of those who are ungodly, but rather, he's saying, the godly person filters all of their opinions that they receive by the word of God. They filter it. They look through it. They evaluate. Okay, here's what people are saying, right? But what does the word of God have to say? And they're comparing the two. That's how the blessed man, that's how the blessed woman, the the happy um, person starts out and gaining that sense of blessedness. The godly do not listen to the wicked. They don't walk in the council. So tonight, how often do we seek advice from someone in our lives who aren't following the ways of Jesus. And I'm not talking about like work-related questions or you're trying to fix your car so you're like, go to your neighbor. But when it comes to major life decisions, when it comes to worldview shaping issues, who are you listening to? Because it doesn't necessarily have to be someone physically in the flesh. It could be even radio, talk radio. It could be television. It could be any sorts of things. Whether we are are purposeful about it or not, we do go to these different sources to shape our worldview or to give us advice. So who is it? Who are we listening to? What advices are we seeking out? I'll say this. More often than not, the counsel of this world, whether that's talk radio or someone who's not following Jesus, their counsel is not going to line up with God's word. It's not going to line up with God's will or his heart or that we find in the scriptures. And again, that's why we talked about on Sunday. We took a portion on Sunday about how important it is to find people in our lives that are godly, that are going to be that Paul to us, that we can follow their example, not of perfection, but of process. People who are always going to point us back to the Savior, even in their struggles. That's who we need to find. That's who we need to to, um, shoulder to shoulder with, right? And so the first thing we find out of being, on, being about on this path that, that is godly, if you want to have the blessed life, the happy life, the fulfilled life, it doesn't come by listening to the counsel of the wicked. And then he says, nor stand in the path of sinners. Listen, I want to be perfectly clear on this point. There's nothing wrong with being friends with people who do not know Jesus. The Bible tells us that Jesus himself is a friend of sinners. And so if you and I are ever going to be salt and light in this world, we have to, we can't just always live our lives in the Christian bubble, though I I am guilty of that so often in my life. But we have to get out and surround ourselves, whether that's just going to a coffee shop or maybe if, if, if you're not working at home, just walking the neighborhood. 
Surround yourself with groups of unbelievers that we can permeate the darkness with the light of Jesus. But the phrase here, standing in the path, it carries this idea of lingering long. Lingering long. Lingering to the point where we start participating in the sinful activities of the unbelievers that we're hanging out with. You might think, well, well, everyone is, is doing it, right? Let's see, they seem happy. It looks like it's fulfilling them. You know, they have a smile on their face. I guess it looks all right. Like that's, those are the easiest things. And, and sometimes it sounds so elementary, but those are the things, the traps that we can f- find ourselves falling into. But then you think of Proverbs 14, where it says, there's a way which seems right unto man, but its end is the way of death. And so we have to be careful. David Gutzik said this, the righteous man is not afraid to take a less traveled road because he knows it leads to blessing, happiness, and eternal life. So when our friends or our, our coworkers or our family even start having a greater influence over us than we do of them, we must reevaluate because something's off, something's wrong. And so he says here, happiness Fulfillment comes by not standing in the path of sinners, lingering to the point where we're now engaging in their sinful patterns and habits. We're supposed to be following again on Sunday, the pattern of Jesus. Jesus is the pattern. But if we're lingering so long around the the, the people of this world and and then in their ways of thinking, then we're gonna start carrying on those same patterns And then he says, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Maybe your your translation says scornful. I grew up with the New King James Version, and so that's the one that I have memorized. But it's the idea of the mocker, those who mock God. In other words, the godly are, are not supposed to get too comfortable with those who have no regard for God in their lives and in their actions. Now, if you're going through the, anyone going through the one year Bible with us? The Yeah, ish. Okay, cool. About half the room. That's awesome. Just a couple weeks ago, we came across this story in Genesis chapter 13. Do you guys remember the story of Lot? Yeah? Very, very familiar story. Lot's problem was that he got way too comfortable with the ungodly. And it happened, and if you're like, I haven't read that story in a while, it happened when, when Abraham and Lot, they were together, they were, Abraham was stepping out in faith, and, and Lot, his nephew, went traveling with him, and they were on this journey. And what happened is both families' kind of flocks got too big. And it got to the point where Abraham's like, hey, look, Lot, I love you, you're my nephew, but we need to separate. We need to go our separate ways. Things are just getting a little too crazy. Our servants are like fighting each other. Like, it's not good. So he's like, I'll tell you what, you're my nephew. I'll give you first kind of pickings, you know? You just pick whatever direction you wanna go in, you wanna land in, then I'll go in the opposite direction, right? And it says that Lot, and it says this, set his eyes on Sodom. He set his eyes because it reminded him, it says, of Egypt. And Egypt has always been, in the Old Testament, a picture of the world. And, it, and Lot, so he looks at Sodom and is attractive to him. And so it says that he pitched his tents in the outskirts of the city. But it's not there. That, that's where it stopped. But you know what happens? He didn't stay there. He didn't just retire there. Pretty soon, Lot moved his whole family into, from the outskirts of the city right into the middle of the city. 
And then finally, we read in the story where Lot comes to the place when he's in that very wicked city that God would eventually destroy by fire because it was filled with a ton of mockers. But Lot was found as a leader in that community. He wasn't just someone living and trying to be an influence, right? It's not like someone trying to live here in Portland and they, they have the, well, I'm a Portland missionary. I'm just going to serve Jesus. And then they just like look like everyone else, right? No, that's what, that was what Lot's life looked like. He was there in the smack dab in the middle of the city influencing away from the ways of Jesus. He got too comfortable. He got way too comfortable in a place he should have never been in the first place. He didn't belong there. And therefore, Lot lost everything, his whole family, except for him and his two daughters, right? And then that story just goes into a worse direction. But listen, I would be mistaken if I didn't exhort you and I tonight that there are dangerous paths in our lives that we can easily take if we get too comfortable. You know, the common story and I'm sure Pastor Doug or Pastor Kevin could tell you, and not in detail, but they could tell you how many counseling sessions they have been in where marriages have fallen apart because of adultery. You know, that innocent flirting that leads one thing to another or people trying to find this happiness in other things. And that could be you know, we always say the big ones, drugs, right? Or pornography, right? Those are true. We do try to find fulfillment, satisfaction in those things, but it could be anything. It could be seeking comfort in this world apart from the Lord. It could be security, like we talked about on Sunday. It could be so many different things, but what you notice is that there's a, prog there's a progression. It's never, my wife and I always talk about this when we, when we hear of someone, especially someone like in the ministry who, who ends up um, falling and just falling into sin. It's never a light switch moment. There's always a progression. You didn't just get from A to Z. There's always been B and C and D. There's this progression, this pattern that people are on when they get too comfortable with the ways of this world. Again, notice, I want you to notice the progression in this verse. It says, starts with walking. Well, at least I'm moving, right? Not stagnant. And then I'm standing. We're starting to get a little more comfortable. And then it gets to a place where I'm sitting. I'm chilling. I'm relaxing. I'm getting, I'm getting comfortable. Charles Spurgeon said this, when men are living in sin, they go from bad to worse. At first, they merely walk in the counsel of the careless and ungodly and forget God. But after that, they become habituated to evil and they stand in the way of open sinners who willfully violate God's commandments. And if left alone or let alone, they go one step further and become themselves pestilent teachers and tempters of others. And thus they sit in the seat of the scornful. Again, there's always a progression when we're walking away from the Lord. It's not a just, whoa, I just woke up and here I am. Like, where did that, how did that happen? There's a progression. And so the, the, the godly man's path, he doesn't listen to the ungodly, the voices. It's, it's funny, I'm just thinking about this, well, like our kids, remember that song, Be Careful Little Ears, what you hear? Oh, there's so much truth to that. Begins in listening and then standing, lingering with sinners where they're becoming more of an influence on you and then it's just getting too comfortable. You're, now you're sitting in their midst with those who are just blatantly 
mocking God, falling in the w- away from God. Now let's look at verse two. We gotta keep going. But his delight, the, the godly man, his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The, the phrase, the law of the Lord, it's not necessarily speaking of the 10 commandments or, or just the f- first five books uh, of, you know, of the Old Testament. The, but really you could say his delight is in the word of God, the entirety of scripture. And the word delight carries the idea of desire or purpose or pursuit. He delights in it, so therefore he desires it, and so he pursues after it. The word of God has captured his full attention, his full affection, and he cultivates this hunger for God's word. The more he's in it, the more he just wants it. You guys ever been there? You're just like, man, there's been some times when I'm reading through like the Old Testament, this, this go around, and I'm just like, and it cuts off for the day. I'm like, no, I want more. Like, what? what? You know, my, my, our little nephew was over, Carter, he's four years old. And when he was really young, you would give him like a drink of like your soda or a piece of candy bar. And his constant, I think it was Carter, his constant response was more, more. <laughs> like, that's what I think of. Like when you taste and see something good, you just crave it. You just want more of it. And that's what happens to, to in, in our hearts. For those, when we delight in God's word, it creates this hunger, this appetite for more. And you're just like, God, give me more. So he delights in the law of the Lord. It's not a burden to him. He delights in it. And so not only does he delight, it says that he meditates on it. Notice this, day and night. He doesn't just hear it and delight in what God says. And then a couple hours later, a couple days later, he forgets about it. But rather he's constantly just thinking, dwelling, pondering God's word day and night, all day long, never escaping God's word. It's being planted in you. And you know what the results will be when this happens in our lives? When you and I are meditating, thinking, dwelling upon God's word, delighting in God's word. Look at verse three. It says this, here's the result. He will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And whatever he does, he prospers. Again, notice the progression or the building of the thought. He will be like a tree planted firmly by streams of water. This tree is a picture of a life that is strong. It's stable. The roots go deep. It's planted in the the, the perfect spot. It has all that it needs for growth and for fruitfulness. The godly man, when he's in the word of God, he's delighting in the word of God. He becomes this strong, stable, immovable force that bears fruit. And that's the natural outcome. We get to bear the fruit of the spirit when we're abiding in the vine. Amen? The Bible says when you sow to the flesh, what do you reap? Of the flesh. Yeah, destruction. But when you sow to the spirit, you you reap eternal life. Now there's no withering that happens, right? When you're firmly planted in this place, there's no withering happen. Your your, your leaf doesn't wither. It yields its fruit. He says here, and whatever he does, he prospers. That is not gaining material wealth and prosperity in that way, but that God is going to bring forth good and amazing things out of his life when he's firmly planted in God's word, submitted to God's will, God does an amazing thing. And then in verse four and through six, we have the contrast. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff, which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. 
For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So everything about the godly man, the man who delights in God's word, who meditates on God's word, who is easily influenced by the ways of this world, for the godly, he says, man, he's a blessed man. But he says, not so for the wicked. They're actually the exact opposite. The godly we saw is like this strong, healthy tree. It's, its roots are in the soil near the water. But the ungodly, he says, he likens it to chaff, which the wind drives away. That is, they are unstable. They're hollow. They're tossed to and fro. There's no weight to them. There's no roots to them. They're worthless. They're of no value. He says, they're driven by the wind. They're being driven toward their own destruction. What good is chaff for? But for fire. So not only are the ungodly unstable, but they're also unprepared. Verse five, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. The psalmist is saying the wicked have no standing on the day of judgment. The Bible tells us that it's appointed unto man once to die and then comes the judgment. And we're all going to die Sorry if that's breaking news to you tonight, but, but when we die, we're going to give the Lord an answer for our lives. We're going to give an account for our lives. Now for the wicked or the ungodly, however you want to interpret that, everything in this life that they've built their life on, no matter how shiny today it is, all the things that they've invested into with their time and their resources, it's all going to be burned up and gone. And he will find that he has nothing to stand on come the day of judgment. Everything familiar will be gone. Every foundation that they built their lives on will be gone. And he's going to find himself completely naked and exposed before God. So the way of the wicked, they're unstable. They're unprepared for judgment. Check out verse six. The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You see, God is going to ask us one question. What did you do? with my son. I sent my son down to the earth to die on the cross, to be the propitiation for your sins. And not just your sins, the sins of the whole world, right? To satisfy the wrath of God so that you can be right with me. And so on judgment day, what did you do with my son? And he says, the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows. The Lord will know. But the way of the wicked, he says, they are going to perish They'll be destroyed. There's those that are on the wide path today. The broad path, the easy path, the comfortable now path. They have a lot of friends now. But in the end, as we found on a Sunday in Matthew 7, it it leads to destruction. There's two men here in this chapter. There's two paths and there's two completely different destinies. But the cool part is, the choice is ours and the choice is your neighbors and your coworkers. Now we got to speed things up. Let's look at chapter two. So the first Psalms, how we, how we should live, how, if we want to experience the blessed life, the happy life, to find true fulfillment. Uh, the second Psalm, Psalm two, is going to talk a little bit about the conditions that we do this, these in, right? It's, it is prophetic in nature. I was talking with Liam before the, before the service. You know, the interesting thing about the Psalms is like, sometimes you're like, is this prophetic? Like, 
we talking Armageddon here? Are we talking like the days of David? Like, is this, or is it about like our lives just applicable? The answer I'd say is yes. When it's very specific and should be specific, I will, I will make a mention of that. But it is prophetic in nature. Yes, the world might be falling apart at the seams, but he's going to say, we're going to find out in this chapter, the kingdom of God is coming. And we have to remember that. If you want to live in our culture according to God's word, we're not going to be liked. We're going to be insulted. We're going to be made fun of. We're going to be mocked. But we have a future that awaits us. So Psalm chapter 2, let's read the whole thing. Verse 1. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. And then he will, he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. And you shall break them with a rod iron and, and shall shatter them like the earthenware. And now therefore, O kings, show discernment Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoicing with trembling. Do homage to the Son that he, uh, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. So again, Psalm 1, you have how to live. Basics, practical. And then here in Psalm 2, we have, okay, here's the environment in which we're living. Don't be surprised. Why are the nations in such an uproar? The nations mentioned, it's mentioned 175 times in the book of Psalms. And the reference is always uh, about the unbelieving world. 175 times in 150 Psalms. It says, why are the nations of verse one in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against, notice that, against the Lord. And against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He's saying, why are the nations so hostile? Why are they gathering uh, together against the Lord, against Jesus, the anointed? Why are the people devising a vain thing? This isn't just the, the kings and leaders notice that. This is the common everyday folk saying, hey guys, let's tear fetters apart and cast their cords from us. That is in layman's terms, because I'm very a simple guy. Like what is he saying there? Let's break off every tie we have to God. Let's be done with God. Let's loosen or break his hand of control or providence on us. These people here in Psalm 2, they view God, God's word as restrictive. Instead of delighting in God's word like the chapter before, or viewing God's word, as the psalmist says, as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, they view it as bondage, as just a, a boo-hoo. This is a bad time. This is raining on our parade. They view it as this chain that they do not want to be bound to. And doesn't that remind you a little bit of our culture? <laughs> the culture in which we're living. Let's be done away with God. Let's remove the Bible from pretty much every sphere. 
Let's silence even on social media. We don't want to hear about sin. We don't want to hear about the cross. We just want to do whatever is right in our own eyes. And that's kind of the the comic thing that you see in scripture, but now we're seeing play out in 2021. Let's no longer worship God. He's too restrictive. Let's worship money. Let's worship sex. Let's worship power or fame or comfort. And we'll worship anything and everything as long as we can break all ties to God. And he says, the nations are in an uproar. That's the world we're living in. But here's the thing. We can't let that, as much as that is such like you look at the news or, or you just, you're aware of what's happening in our, in our nation. You can't let that get us depressed. Why? Because this, and my, my wife reminds me of this all the time, because the Lord has placed you and I in Portland, Oregon for such a time as this. He's called us to this until he calls you to Texas or, or heaven or whatever, if you're viewing Texas as heaven, like he has you here, he has me here for a purpose. Listen, it doesn't matter how bad the world gets. It, it doesn't matter how dark it gets. You and I are called to stand firm and shine our lights bright, not run away but to be salt and light to this world. The nations are in an uproar. Everyone is found in just complete rebellion against God and his word. So why are they carrying on? Because they want all restraint removed. Look at verse four. But he who sits in heaven laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. I love this. God, our sovereign God, right? Looks down at the nations, looks down at the world who's trying to rid themselves of him. They're trying to rid every single trace of God. They just want to violate the ways of God. They're, they're, uh, they're brainwashing generation after generation to, to, to walk away from God. But here it says that God sees it all. He's aware of it all and he laughs. He doesn't say that he's sweating and he's starting to freak out. Like, man, I better get plan C. Like plan A just went to crap. Like, no, no, no. He just laughs. You and I, you know, the little faith that we have at times, we're, we're down here and we're looking up and we're, our hands are sweating. We're just like, God, do you not see? Do you not see what they're doing? Do you not? They're trying to remove you from everything and everywhere. And we're the minorities. Do you not see the immorality of our culture or fill in the blank? You've probably prayed that prayer in the last couple of days, but listen, God does see. That's what we find out from this passage, that God isn't moved by it, like emotionally moved by it, like it would move us. But God is fully in control. No one can thwart his plans. Can I get an amen to that? Isaiah 40 says this, no, for all the nations of the world are but a drop in the bucket. They are nothing more than dust on the scales. He picks up the whole world as though it were a grain of sand. Come on, we need some perspective. That God is sovereign. He's in control. So yes, the Lord is not shaking in fear. He's got everything under control. Look at verse five. It's going to get even better. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury saying, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Listen, God might laugh, but he doesn't stay inactive. You guys see that? God might laugh and and that can annoy you for a second. You're like, come on, God, I need more than just a chuckle. Like, come on, like we're dying down here. He doesn't stay inactive. God responds Oh, you think you're breaking away from me, huh? (laughs) 
oh, you think that no one's just going to rule you and I'm just going to go hands off on my creation. You think you're just going to do away with me, right? God laughs and he says, please. (laughs) These threats are not new to me. I've been dealing with kings and people like you forever. He says, and I love this, I've already installed my king. You notice that? That's capitalized. I've already established my king. My son, Jesus Christ, is going to rule the world. It doesn't matter what the TV show you're watching says. It doesn't matter what social media says. It doesn't matter what the president of the United States says. It doesn't matter about our culture, guys. This is the good news. You and I are blessed because we delight in God's word. We don't have to listen to the counsel of the ungodly because the truth is this, the Lord is on the throne. And it's going to be his way or the highway and his will will be accomplished. Jesus, listen to this, Jesus is coming and he's going to rule the nations. And you know why I say that? Because he already said it and he's faithful. So we shouldn't be shocked at the uproar of the world around us and how much they hate us for what we stand for. They're never going to accept or like the things of God. But God says, don't worry. I've already installed my king. I've already established my king upon Zion. And Jesus speaks in verse seven. I am, this is Jesus now. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. This is what the father is telling the son here. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall shatter them like earthenware. So the decree here is the reign of Jesus over the earth. The father says to the son, today I've begotten you, not created you, not birthed you. Jesus isn't a created being, but today I've marked you. For this day, for you to reign, you know, I think of Matthew, was it Matthew 28, right before, yeah, great commission, but Jesus says this, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's the promise of the father. We know Philippians chapter two, that God has highly exalted Jesus, right? He's given them the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So that's the promise of the father. That is the decree of the Lord. Look at verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, these are the rebellious ones, show discernment, he says, or or maybe your translation says, be wise. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the king that he may not become angry and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. Lord says, show discernment. Here's the counsel, right? This is God. Here's the counsel. Oh, kings of the earth, give us your, like give up your foolish defiance of the Lord. Give it up. There's no stopping the Lord. There's no thwarting his plans. There's no power on earth that will ever come in his way. So he says, because all of that is true, because I'm God, I'm just laughing at your little schemes, Because I'm sovereign, I'm in control. You think you voted here or voted there, but no, I'm really in control of it all. In his mercy, listen to this. His mercy says this, turn to me. 
Repent of your sins. Worship, he says, the Lord with reverence. I love this about the Lord because he's so, more, he's so far like great, more gracious and merciful than I ever would be as king and as God. But he doesn't look his enemies in the face. He has every right to, but he doesn't say, you want to fight me? Then you're done. You're dead. No, 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 no. But rather we see his heart here and he says, there is a better way. Show discernment. Turn to me, he says. Turn to me while there's still time. And isn't, wasn't that, isn't that God's heart for us? That's why he sent Jesus to show us mercy. So we can trust in Jesus. That's why Jesus came, died on the cross. Give up his life so that we would turn to him. And then the chapter ends like chapter one began with how blessed are all those who take refuge in him. There's a blessing, he says, a fulfillment, a happiness that comes when we take refuge, not in the things of this world, not in princes, not in chariots, not in horsemen, but in the Lord. Not in your 401k, not in your job security, not in the president, in the Lord. Take refuge in the Lord. He says, blessed is the man who does that. Happy is the man, content. So it doesn't matter if you lose your job tomorrow. I'm, I'm just kidding. It doesn't matter who, who, who what, what laws get passed this, in the next four years, right? Take refuge in the Lord. You will be blessed. But he leaves it to us. It's about choices. Who are we going to serve? What path are we going to go down? Either, either we'll be on the, the path of the wicked and we'll perish, or we'll be blessed and we'll find refuge. And I, my prayer tonight and, and this year is that I would be and that you would be men and women found delighting in God's word, hoping in God's word, finding refuge in God's word so that in the day and age in which we live, we can be the difference in our culture. People can see Jesus in us, amen? Lord, thank you for your word tonight. Father, I thank you for your mercy. Just thinking how undeserved we are even. I know for myself, just in all honesty before you, just always battling this idea that I, I somehow deserved your mercy and you gave it to us in Jesus. And, and Lord, we're so undeserved, just like the kings here in Psalm 2 of all of these nations going against you and wanting to rid our lives of you. God, that was us at one point. And yet you were merciful and gracious to us and you opened our eyes to see our need for Jesus. And Holy Spirit, you, you awakened our heart to respond to you. And I, I thank you for that truth. I thank you for saving me. I thank you for saving these people. I thank you that they gave their lives to you. And I just pray, Lord, that you would strengthen our walk with you, that you would um, increase our love for your word this year, that we would grow as learners, as disciples, following in the ways of Jesus together. Lord, that's a work of your spirit that we're entrusting to you. And I just, I just pray, God, that you would, you would work that in us that we would see victory this year over the flesh, 
in ways that we've never been able to see victory. I just pray that for our church. Lord, tonight we just want to worship you, declare, God, how good and great you are. We place our hope in you once again. Lord, we trust you. You're so faithful. You've been faithful, Lord, and we know you're going to remain faithful. And so we thank you for that. Bless each one as we even go the rest of our week. Be glorified in our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.